We're going through the Bible on Wednesday nights. Uh, tonight we're in 1 Timothy chapter 2, so please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much for how you've blessed us and provided for us. And we thank you for this coffee bar. We do pray that you would use it, that you would pour out your spirit uh, upon it, that it would be a place where we would share our hearts and our lives to share you, that lives would be touched uh, for eternity. We thank you for the children's ministry and the Awana Award Night, God. And we just pray that you would bless them and bless the kids as they've worked hard and just bring joy to them as they get to do store night. Thank you for junior high and high school. We pray that you would really move through the drama that's taking place right now in the high school room and touch hearts, encourage kids, bring kids to you. Pray that you would speak through that. God, as we study your word tonight, we just pray that we could be like those that are planted in the word, that meditate upon the word, that our roots would go deep into you, God, that we would flourish in no matter what season that we're in. And as we look at church tonight, what you intended church to be, we pray that we would submit afresh to your word. We ask that you would pour out your spirit on this group of believers, Rocky Mountain Calvary. We would glorify you. We'd walk in your ways and in your will. In Jesus' name, amen. What is church? What comes to your mind when you think of church? Hopefully it's a lot more than the brick and mortar, the building, the structure, We tend to think of church as a structure, as Americans, but biblically, we know that the church is God's people gathered together. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. It means assembly, and even more specifically, a group of people that are called out from to something. So you think of being called out from our sin, from the world, to Christ, to be gathered together in fellowship. And there is a lot of power in a group of people that are gathered together with like-minded vision and purpose. You think about the Denver Broncos. Those guys are called out to something. They're drafted, they're chosen, they're picked, they're sought after, not to mention the millions of dollars that they get paid to be there, right? And they have a specific purpose to try to win football games And we rally around that in excitement and disappointment sometimes, right? How much more so for us as God's people, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, he's called us to himself, not individually, but together corporately. In this chapter and chapter three, we see God's instruction for for the church. Look closely with me in chapter three, verse 15. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3, 15. And Paul kind of lays out the theme for these two chapters. This is chapter 3, verse 15. It says, But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. So he says, I'm writing this to you so Timothy, you know, and others know how they're to behave in the church of God. And the church of God is the house of God. God dwells in the midst of his people, and he gives this incredible compliment and calling to the church that we're the pillar and the ground of truth, that God is living among us, and that we're to be the ground and the pillar of truth. 
Can you think of some of the metaphors that are given for the church throughout the scriptures? They're powerful, that we're the body of Christ. That's, that's quite a statement about the church, isn't it? So we're God's hand and his feet in this lost and, and dying world. Also, it's described as the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ, speaking of Christ's love for us and his passion for us. We're the house of God collectively. We're living stones put together as God's masterpiece for him to live inside of us. And the church is also described as God's family. We're his sons and his daughters. So tonight we're going to see three ingredients, three things that the church is to do, three things that the church is to be, as we begin in verse 1. It says, Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplication, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Therefore, so it takes us back to the end of chapter 2, where Timothy is exhorted to stay the course, for his faith to not be shipwrecked, to wage the good warfare. So now Paul's saying, in light of this challenge to wage the good warfare, here's what you need to be doing. And I exhort, first of all, that there be supplication, prayers, intercession, and giving thanks for all men. First thing that your church is to be is to be praying. We're to be a prayerful church. We're to be filled with prayer. The priority is placed upon this in Paul's perspective. As he's writing to Timothy, who's pastoring in Ephesus, he says, Timothy, you need to be praying. Not only do you need to be praying, but the church there needs to be praying, and they need to pray for all men. We find this synonyms for prayer here. Supplication, which is asking for something. It's a specific request, supplication. Prayer's a broad word, and it refers to communication with God. So, Pouring our heart out to him, but also listening to his voice. It's a broad term of our communication with him. Intercession refers to the requests we make on the behalf of others. Intense requests lifted up on behalf of others. And giving thanks is an essential part of our our walk with God. But what we find here is these phrases are building upon each other. If you're trying to communicate importance, you might use similar words to describe the same thing that you're trying to get across. Like, this is good. No, this is really good. No, no, this is really, really, really good. And this is what Paul is expressing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's saying you need to be praying for people, but you need to be interceding for people, but you need to be bringing requests on the behalf of others, supplication with thanksgiving. And what we find here in verse 1 is that our prayer is to be for all men. That's how broad God is in prayer. He says, I want you praying for everyone. Now for me, I feel challenged in the area of prayer. I feel like it's one of the areas that God is desiring for me to, to grow in. For whatever reason, time in the Word has come more naturally than time in prayer. It's a joy for me to pray. But I don't feel like my prayer life is where God would desire it to be and where I would want it to be. And you might resonate with that. So, so how do we grow in prayer? How do we move in, in prayer? And a lot of times I find that, that prayer is like many other disciplines. The more that you do it, the more that you grow in it, you know? So you can read books about prayer. You can decide to do this or do that, but in all actuality, many times when we begin to pray, when we begin to fast, it moves us to more prayer in the Lord and more fellowship with the Lord. 
we see it as a priority in the life of Jesus. So many times he's drawing away from people to spend time in prayer. Take your lunch hour. Maybe you get a half hour. Maybe you get an hour, 45 minutes, and say, I'm going to take 15 minutes and go for a walk and talk with the Lord. That's one of the most effective ways for me to be able to pray is to walk and talk with the Lord. Maybe it is I'm going to start my day on my knees for five minutes and pour out my heart before God. Or when I lay down in bed, I'm going to commune with God and commune with the Father and begin to to lift others up before the Lord. Get specific in verse 2 for kings and all who are in authority. So God wants us praying for everyone and giving thanks for everyone. There's something to be thankful for about everyone. But specifically, he wants us praying for kings and those who are in authority, those that have authority in our lives. For the church of Ephesus, they're under the Roman occupation. They're under the Roman Empire, and specifically Nero, who is destroying Christians, killing Christians, persecuting Christians. How difficult it would be to pray for the Roman Empire, to pray for for Nero. And one of the things that I'm challenged on is how much do I believe in the power of prayer? How much do I believe that prayer has impact upon those who are in authority over us? And Jesus taught us in Matthew 5, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And here Paul is instructing them in the ways of Christ. So pray for the Romans. Pray for Nero. What kind of impact did the prayers have upon the Roman Empire? Are there places throughout Scripture where God moved in the hearts of rulers in a radical way? Yes. We find Pharaoh. God moved in Pharaoh's life. God spoke to Pharaoh through Moses. Moses hardened his heart, but God won out. Do you think that Moses was praying for Pharaoh? Absolutely. Do you think Moses was praying that God's glory would be shown through Pharaoh? I believe so. We read on later into the Old Testament and we find Daniel who's in captivity under Nebuchadnezzar. We know Daniel was a praying man. We know that it was his habit, his discipline to pray three times a day. Do you think he was praying for Nebuchadnezzar? Absolutely. Nebuchadnezzar's walking through his palaces, all that he's built, and he begins to boast of his accomplishments, God humbles him and makes him like a beast of the field. I believe God answered the prayers of Daniel and moved in Nebuchadnezzar's life in a very powerful way, and he was a humbled man. When he was humbled, then God restored him to his right mind. We find Ezra in captivity as well. The priest no doubt praying that God would fulfill his word to bring the children of Israel back to the promised land. And this is Ezra chapter 1 verse 1. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all this kingdom. You know what his proclamation was? I'm going to allow Israelites to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Ezra was praying for Cyrus. Cyrus then was stirred by God and he fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah. That leads us to Nehemiah. 
with King Artaxerxes. He knows that the temple's now been built, but there's no wall around it. The scripture tells us, Nehemiah 1 and 2, that he's praying for three to four months for an opportunity to bring this need before the king. He's the king's cupbearer. Then he decides today's the day and was sad in the king's presence. The king says, what's wrong? Why are, why are you sad? And Nehemiah prays once again and lays the, the need out before King Artaxerxes. And King Artaxerxes does something that's crazy. This pagan king says, Nehemiah, you go build the wall. Here's the resources to be able to do it. He funded it. And let me send some soldiers with you to make sure you get safe travel. See, God holds the hearts of kings. He holds the hearts of those who are in authority. And he moves through the prayers of his people. And do we believe this? I think it's a critical time in our country for us to be praying for those who are in authority over us. We need to be praying for the police officers of our city that keep order in our city, that that keep us safe. Do Do you think to pray for them and to pray for their safety? When they go to work, they don't know if they're gonna come back home. Do you do you pray for our mayor? Mayor John Sutherland's, to to lift him up to the Lord, that he would make godly decisions. Do we believe that it's such a a critical time in our country as Trump takes office and what God may be doing in his heart as he prepares to enter into the presidency? Maybe you have a boss that you go is difficult, that maybe reminds you of the Roman Empire a little bit. You see the similarities between them and Nero. Are you lifting them up to the Lord, Lord in prayer? Maybe it's a principle if you're in school, high school student or, or college student. Are you lifting that principle up to the Lord? Maybe it's an HOA, someone in your neighborhood that rules the HOA. and it, They might as well be Donald Trump with the way that they rule the neighborhood, right? And they're getting underneath your skin and making your life, life difficult. Do you lift them up in prayer? That's what God is calling us to do. He says, for kings and all those who are authority. And then notice what happens. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. This is to be the attitude of a believer towards authority. The only time that we disobey authority is when they're asking us to disobey God's word. And in that disobedience, I think it's still supposed to be filled with love and reverence. It's not out of arrogance or I'm spiting you. It's out of a heart of humility that I must honor God above honoring you. And as we lift those that are in authority, then it causes to have a quiet and peaceable life, a quiet and peaceable spirit that's filled with godliness and reverence. This only happens through time spent with God. As we have time spent with God in prayer, we know that the Lord is in control and we're trusting him in, in that way. Verse 3, it says, For it is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the second thing about the church is the church is to be reaching. So first the church is to be praying, and then the church is to be reaching. What is the desire of God? Paul says this is good and this is acceptable in God's sight. This is what God desires, that all men would be saved and all men would come to the knowledge of the truth. So as we're praying for those who are in authority, we need to specifically have the mission or the purpose or the aim in our prayers that they would come to know Christ as their Savior. God, would you work in my boss's life that they would come to know you? 
Lord, would you work in the leaders of our city that they would know you and our police officers and our president and the kings of this world, those that are in authority, that they would come to know Christ as their Savior. Not only those who are in authority, but all people would come to know you. That's God's heart and that's God's desire. That's his mission. That's what he's fulfilling in in this earth. So one of the things that we want to keep in the forefront of our hearts and our minds as a church family is we want to be growing to know Christ and be more like Christ, but also growing and sharing Christ. God didn't save us just to make our lives better, right? He didn't save us just so that we could have better marriages and better relationships with our kids and get our finances in order and maybe not be quite as angry as we used to be. And There's enough fuel there for us to focus on that for the rest of our lives. Amen? But this isn't just make our lives better. It's to know Christ and to make him known, to be able to share. So we're praying and we're sharing what Christ has done for them. And Paul gets into this. And this is really the meat of the text. If we don't understand the center part of the text, then the beginning and the end doesn't make sense. We don't have passion to pray if we don't see lost souls. We don't have passion for the church to be set up in an orderly way if it, we're not convinced that the need to reflect the gospel. So Paul goes into the gospel here. He says, for there's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. God desired for all to be saved, and he provided the vehicle, his son. There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men. Jesus put it this way. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Some like to describe salvation as hiking Pike's Peak. There's several trails up Pike's Peak. You can go the back way, you can go the front way, you can go the rogue way and make your own trail. But as long as you keep hiking up, eventually you're going to make it to the top. And that's how a lot of people see a relationship with God and eternal life. As long as you have faith, you're okay. But God is very specific that that's not the case. It's exclusive, it's narrow, it's only through Christ. Christ is the only way to the Father. He is the only mediator. Your faith is only as good as the object that it's placed in. Amen? So it's not something that we have faith. It's something if we have faith in Jesus Christ. He is the way. And notice he's not a way. He's not, okay, here's all the requirements. Here's the manual. This is what you have to do. Here's the rules and the regulations. But it's trust me. I'm the way. And he then takes us to the Father. He's the mediator between God and men. And there's an emphasis on the man, Jesus Christ. Why do we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ? God in human flesh, so that Christ would be crucified. What's in view of the manger is the cross. That Christ would die for our sins. So the humanity of Christ is emphasized because that's where the ransom is paid in verse 6 who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He gave himself. He paid the price. He himself, God in human flesh, perfection, crucified for us. He paid the ransom for our sin. The idea here is slavery. Someone's a slave and they're being bought. They're being purchased. We're a slave to our sin and Jesus bought us. He, he paid the price for us. And then Paul says, this is to be testified. 
This is to be declared. This is to be shared. So, so why are we praying? We're praying that people would get saved. We're praying that God would open up hearts to the gospel, that God would give us opportunities to testify, opportunities to share what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's the mission of God. That, that's the great commission. Be looking for those opportunities. At work, at the grocery store, with your family. Go out of your way. God, what are you doing tonight? Holy Spirit, how are, how are you moving in such a way that I would have an opportunity to testify of the goodness of God, to testify of the gospel? That, that's the church. That's what God has called us to, individually and collectively. Amen? God's going to give you opportunities. It's written about D.L. Moody's life that he wouldn't go to sleep unless he shared the gospel with one person every day. And there's stories of him late at night going, man, I haven't had an opportunity to share the gospel. And he would walk the streets until God gave him an opportunity. That's a hunger for souls, isn't it? That's a, that's a desire for souls. There's lost people all around us. We're able to share with them, Jesus loves you. He created you. He died for you. He paid the price for your sin. He paid it all. No other religion provides a solution for sin. It's you have to pay the price, but Jesus has paid the price for us. In verse 7, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul says, I've been appointed. He knew that God had called him. He's a preacher, which means a herald. He's declaring the good news. He's an apostle, which means he's sent out. And he's a teacher. He's an instructor, specifically to the Gentiles, which are the unreached people, the non-Jewish people. In verse 8, in this last section between verse 8 and verse 15, we see the third thing that the church is to be. The church is to be submitting. So we're praying. We're praying for the hearts and the souls of men, especially for those who are in authority. Then we're reaching. We're reaching out to those who don't know Christ as their Savior, always keeping in mind those that don't know the Lord. And then finally, we're submitting. We're submitting to what God's order is inside of the church. And Paul, at the end of chapter 2 and going into chapter 3, he's going to lay out specifically how he wants his church to be conducted. And he gives some instruction to men. He gives instruction to women. He gives instruction to elders and tells us how elders should be appointed and what we should be looking for for church church leadership. So we first look in verse 8. It says, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And we go on into verse 9 and we'll go back to verse 8. It says, In like manner also, the women adorn themselves in modest apparel. So it's very clear from verse 8 and 9 that he's addressing men, and then he's addressing women. And he starts with the men, and he challenges the men in the area of prayer. He says, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere. Would it be known that the men of Rocky Mountain Calvary are men of prayer? Is that the testimony of who we are? as pastors, as men, at at this particular church? Probably not. That's probably not what we're known for. That's probably not what what marks us. Maybe, Maybe other things. In fact, I don't know of a group of men in any particular church 
that are marked by prayer. Most of the time, prayer ministries and prayer rooms and prayer inside of families and prayer in workplace, a lot of times the women are leading the way in the area of prayer. The women are the prayer warriors. The women are the ones that understand the value of prayer. And here God is stirring the men. He's stirring the men of the church and says, I want you to be praying everywhere. Men, I want you to lead the charge in this area of prayer. And I specifically hear that challenge of everywhere. God God is saying, Eric, I want you to pray everywhere that you go. I want you to pray without ceasing. I want you to be leading out in prayer in your home. I want you to be leading out in prayer inside of the church. And this first section, these first eight verses really challenge our view of prayer and how important it is and how God moves through the power of prayer and specifically lifting up holy hands. And this is something that we don't talk about very often, but it's throughout scripture of lifting up our hands before God in prayer. This has an idea of desperation. This has an idea of unashamed. I'm not ashamed about the fact that that I am talking to God. It does go back to, to the Old Testament. Solomon, when he was dedicating the temple, it tells us that he got on his knees and he lifted his hands to God and he prayed. We find in Exodus chapter 17 that Moses goes up onto a hill while Joshua is fighting the enemy and he lifted his hands to God, symbolizing prayer. What happened is his hands got weary. Aaron and Ur came and lifted up his hands. And as his hands were lifted in intercession, there was victory with Joshua. As his hands fell, they began to be defeated. Is there victories that God wants to do in our church, in our families, in our communities, as men lift their hands in prayer? You know, I I love testimonies of of men leading out in prayer in their workplace and saying, hey, I want to invite anybody who wants to to come in and, and pray. You know, I I know men in our city that are leading out in in such fashion and men inside of our church and in our homes. And and guys, it's a challenge for us. I think the Holy Spirit would would challenge us this evening. I'd like to challenge you tonight as a man to say, where are you at in your prayer life? And are you lifting up your holy hands to the Lord in regards of your family and your church and, and your community? And with this is holy hands. God wants our hands to be holy, not perfect, but holy. Hands that are set apart. If my hands are lifted up in prayer, it's very difficult for my hands to be filled with sinful things. Amen? So that's where God wants men to be. And he says, without wrath and without doubting. A lot of times we are angry with our hands. And specifically, we're angry with our authority a lot of times as men. And so God says, men, as you lift up your hands in prayer, I don't want you to be angry. You don't need to be in that place of anger and you don't need to be in that place of doubting but into that place of trust. Again, how do we grow our prayer life? Begin praying. Begin talking to the Lord as a best friend. Take the Lord's prayer, how Jesus taught the disciples to pray and begin to pray through it. The work that God could do as we would humble ourselves and we would pray. Psalms 28 verse 2 says, Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary, lifting up our hands to the Lord. The exhortation to the women in verse 9, in like manner also, 
that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. So the instruction here is adorn yourself. But what are you adorning yourself with? Adorn yourself first with modest apparel. And so apparel that is not drawing attention to yourself in a way that would be unmodest. And so, so that's what God first is calling. Is take thought in what you're wearing is my apparel modest. And then goes on with propriety. What does propriety mean? Appropriate for the occasion. So there's, there's clothes that's appropriate for hanging at home watching a movie, isn't it? It's appropriate for the occasion. There's appropriate clothes for the gym. There's appropriate clothes for going to work. And so in this area of dress, he's saying adorn yourself in modest apparel, but also propriety, the, the right clothes for the right occasion. And then it says, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or, or costly clothing, but what is proper for professing godliness. It's a focus on internal over external. To be adorned with modesty, to be adorned with godly character. Ladies, this is not saying that it's wrong to look nice. You know, that, that you have to go around just in a way that's frumpy. I don't know how other will to put it, you know. So it, it's not wrong to, you know, say, man, I, I want to look nice and I, I want to be attractive and, and those, those types of things. But what it is saying here, and it's not an issue of, you know, is it wrong to braid your hair or is it wrong to have costly clothing? Or is it wrong to, to have gold jewelry? But is that the focus? And is it done in moderation? Is it done in a way where I'm drawing attention to the Lord? Or I'm drawing attention to myself? And this is where I think, remember when I said, if you miss this part of the chapter, the rest of it's not going to make sense? God's desire is what? That all people would be saved. So men, why do we need to be praying? so that all people would be saved. Ladies, why does it matter how you dress? Because we want to see everyone be saved. So we want to dress in a way that reflects the gospel. We want to dress in a way that points people to Jesus Christ and doesn't point people to ourselves. And there's some application that goes across the board here. You know, women, there's an exhortation for you in prayer. Men, we should be dressing in modesty as well. You know, in our culture today, men can be guilty of this as well. Amen? You know, men can be dressing in a way where they're like wanting to draw attention uh, to, to themselves. So, and the key is the end of verse 10. It says, professing godliness with good works, adorning with good works, adorning with, with modesty, that inward beauty. First Peter 3, verses 3 through 5 says, do not let your adornment be merely outward. So it's a, not a condemnation on outward adornment, but it's a focus arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. God sees the heart. We go on into verse 11. It's going to get really good here tonight, guys. Wait, if you haven't read ahead on this, this section... Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. 
Let's pray. Let's, let's, let's go home. What does this mean? Let's unpack this and learn from this, this section of Scripture. Obviously, there was issues that were happening at the church of Ephesus. Things were not being done in an orderly fashion. And Paul's addressing this. But he's also going to teach us the, the order that he has placed in, inside of church. And first, when it says women learn in silence, a, a lot of translations translate that as in quietness. It's not referring to that women can never speak in church. And we know that as it goes on into verse 12 and says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in in silence. So the issue was this issue of of teaching and taking authority over, over a man. So how do we know this in the rest of the New Testament? You know, can a woman pray as the church prays together? Can a, can a woman sing and worship and lead in worship? Yes, because we find Paul writing and saying, you know, if you come together and someone has a song, let them sing it. If you come together and someone has a prayer, let, let them pray that prayer. And so the issue here is that there was women inside of the church of Ephesus where it wasn't just that they were, were talking, but that they were wanting to have that position of being a teaching elder in the church a teaching pastor in a church. And with that, teaching God's word comes authority. There's, there's authority with the word of God. And in that sense, then there's that encouragement. Don't take that position and have that teaching authority over a man. Now then this raises question, is this just cultural? Is this just for the church of Ephesus? Or is this a timeless truth that is for all churches? And the answer is found in verse 13. It says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So if this wasn't here, you might be able to say this is cultural. And it doesn't matter, man or woman, who is taking that elder teaching position inside of a church. But here, Paul says it goes back to creation and God created Adam first and then Eve. Some might be saying, big deal, why does that matter? But God gave to Adam the headship of the family. We find that in Ephesians as well. God's instruction to wives is saying that your husband is your head, as Christ is the head of the church. So God always intended for Adam to be the leader, and that's why he created him first. John Stott, in his commentary, puts it this way. He says, All attempts to get rid of Paul's teaching on headship, on grounds that it is mistaken, confusing, culturally bound, or culturally specific, must be pronounced unsuccessful. It remains stubbornly there. It's rooted in divine revelation, not human opinion, in divine creation, not human culture. In essence, therefore, it must be preserved and have permanent and universal authority. I think that really sums it up. And again, why does this matter? Why do we here, in December of 2016, want to submit to what God has placed as roles inside of the church because we want to see all people saved. Amen? That's why this matters. People should be able to look at the church and see the church functioning and conducting in a godly way, reflecting the roles that he's laid out inside of Scripture to point to the gospel. And, that, and that's why we want to follow the instructions that, that God has, has given. Paul goes on to say, 
And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So first, God created it this way, even before the fall. And that's interesting. It's not just a result of the fall, but God allowing Adam to be the leader was there even before the fall took place. With the fall, we think of the Garden of Eden. It says here that Eve was deceived. And because Eve was deceived, that's part of the reason why now God has given this responsibility over to men inside of the church. We know that Adam was there as well. And Adam is not held unresponsible. In fact, throughout the New Testament, Adam is the one who is responsible for the fall. It's always in reference to him. Why? Because he's the head. And that's humbling for us as husbands. Ultimately, we're responsible for what's going on in our marriages and in our, in our homes. But Adam chose willfully. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that he was disobeying the Lord, where Eve was deceived. Eve was deceived by Satan. And, and how did Satan deceive her? By saying, you're going to be like God. Be like God. And she says, oh, that, that sounds good. And in that moment, in Eve's deception, what did she do? She went outside of God's authority. God said, I don't want you to eat from this particular tree. And she, in her deception, went out of God's authority. She went to Adam and said, Adam, let's do this. And she, in that moment, then goes out of the authority of her husband as well. She, so she moved out of that authority that God had placed on her. And then because of that, we see that that being one of the reasons why God says men are then commissioned to lead in that way. And then it goes on to verse 15. It says, nevertheless, but before I get into verse 15, I want to delve into this a little bit more. So, what if we just throw this section out? Because a lot of churches are doing that, right? And some of you might be a little surprised that we're holding to it. You're going, did I understand him right? They're going to hold to this? Yeah, you understood me right. Is that when it comes to elders at RMC, they're going to be men and teaching elders, as we'll look at in First Timothy chapter 3, that all elders should be apt and able to teach. Because this is what we believe this passage to mean and how it is clearly meant to, to be laid out. So is it a big deal that our church and other churches hold to this? I think that it is, and this is why. Because if we throw out roles inside of the church, how do roles hold up inside of the home? So for most churches, they still believe that inside of the home, the husband's to be the leader. But if that then isn't reflected in what God has said in instructions of how the church should be led... In essence, it really erodes what takes place inside of, of the home. So if we're going to instruct God's divine plan inside of the home, we also have to hold to God's divine plan inside of the church. Does that make sense? And that's why I think it's a very slippery slope. If we say, well, you know, we're just going to go ahead and never, never mind this. And then another really, really important thing that I hope you really hear in this is that roles doesn't mean that someone is superior and someone is inferior. 
So, so let me say that again. Roles doesn't mean that someone is superior and someone else is inferior. How do we know? God sets up authority in every place. We saw that even at the beginning of the chapter with kings and those that are in political and civic power. Even inside of the Trinity, there is roles and there is a structure. The father is the head. The second member of the Trinity is the son. And the third is the Holy Spirit. But are they equal? Yes. Is Jesus God just as much as the Father is God? Yes. Is Jesus inferior to the Father? I don't know of any Christian that would teach that Jesus is inferior to the Father. But they do understand that Jesus submitted to the Father. So men, I hope you understand and called to be a leader in the home, it's not this jerk mentality that I've got the authority and what I say goes and women have to be doormats and man, that's the farthest thing from the truth. It's Christ-centered servanthood and with comes responsibility, comes great requirement to be able to, to serve. So by no means does it mean that men are better or does it mean that women are inferior? If you're questioning that, look at the Trinity. Look at Jesus submitting to to the Father. So I hope men don't abuse this and I hope women don't take from this and going, well, because God's word says that I can't be uh, a lead pastor at a church, I can't be the one teaching from, from the pulpit that somehow I am inferior. And then the last thing I want to comment on this before I go to the next verse is women see what God has called you to. You can get very stumbled over the fact of saying, well, God's not allowing me to teach and have authority over, over a man, but look what he has allowed you to do. And I think that we've seen tremendous fruit inside of this, inside of our fellowship. We have a, a wonderful group of women who are committed to teaching other women. And when I first started senior pastoring in 2005, I was 27 years old. And my wife and I and the elders of the church, we really decided we were going for a Timothy or Titus chapter two model of women's ministry. And it was one of the best decisions that we've, we've ever made. And if you don't know what that is, we'll get to Titus two here shortly. And what it is, is older women teaching younger women. And there's so much women that's passed from one woman to another woman. And there's been an incredible amount of fruit in our, our women's ministry as older women have taught younger women. Ladies, there's so much teaching to be done. The scripture's not saying that you can't teach. The, the scripture's saying don't teach and have authority over a man. Don't be the one that's going to be that biblical authority in a church that's holding the line of biblical authority that's, that's doing church discipline. But invest in other women and invest in children. Most of the time, as we as pastors sit down and talk with people, they've been beat up through life. And moms, you have the opportunity as a child is growing up to invest in them and train in them in a way that a, a pastor never could. I can't put this into words, but you see it happening in our fellowship, hopefully in both sides. Hopefully you see a biblical model of male leadership that's done in humility. Not perfectly, but a biblical model of eldership. And then I think if you look around, you see a lot of awesome, godly women who are functioning exactly the way that the Lord would intend for, for them to do. And it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it's exactly what the Lord had in place and, and had planned. So you can get stumbled over what 
God's saying you can't do, or you can get really motivated by what God is allowing you to do. One of the things that I share with my kids is I call it the umbrella of obedience. And if you think of an umbrella, what happens when you're underneath that umbrella? It provides protection, doesn't it, from the storm. And when you get outside of that umbrella, then you have to face the storm on your own. And as God has set up this authority and we accept it and we submit to it, there's a blessing that comes from him. We're underneath his umbrella of of blessing. And that's where I want my life to be personally. I want to be submitted to the Lord. I want to be honoring my parents. I want to honor authority that God has placed in my life because by doing that, I'm coming underneath God's authority. And then as men submit to God's plan and pray the way that we should and lead in the way that we should, then hopefully that will lead to God's blessing inside of our church and in our homes. And ladies, as you choose to not fight it, but go with it and come underneath that umbrella of obedience, then we're living under God's blessing. Does that make sense? So I think it's important, and I'm thankful for how the Lord is playing it out in our church fellowship. And if you thought that this wasn't good yet, it gets even better in verse 15. I mean, ladies, we're talking about dress, we're talking about church, and then we're talking about kids in verse 15. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This word saved, it's not speaking of your eternal destiny. It's not saying, ladies, you have to have kids to go and be with the Lord for all of eternity. That makes no sense. It makes no, no sense with the rest of the Bible from what we know that the gospel is, what we've just shared. We also know that some women aren't married, that some women aren't able to have kids. So in no way is it saying that you have to have kids in order to be saved. But what it is saying is it's saying that the full orb of God's blessing is found in having kids. So ladies, if you're married and you're able to have kids and God blesses you with kids, you're going to experience a tremendous blessing in having children. And this is a message that I think needs to get out. And I think men and women both need to hear it. And it's God's got this wonderful plan called the family. And as a culture, more and more we're going, I don't know if I want to have kids. I'm not sure if I want to have kids. Does God have anything to say about having kids? Absolutely. It says, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful. And that's one of the first commands that that he gives. And obviously we don't have to repopulate the earth now. But God's desire from, I read the scriptures, is to bless couples with children. And sometimes that doesn't happen. And I know one of the greatest pains in life, ladies, is if you're not able to have kids. But I want you to open up your ears for a second, all of you, whether you have kids or you don't, and hear these words from Psalms 127 of how God sees children. He says, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat bread of sorrows, for he gives his beloved sleep. Here it is. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. The word heritage means reserved blessing. So I'm getting ready to die. And I go, okay, I've got a reserved blessing. It's my 12-gauge shotgun. It was handed down to me from my grandpa, Remington Wingmaster. 
Here you go, Wyatt. It's going to be yours. I'm passing it on. It's the reserved blessing. It's your heritage. It belonged to your great-grandpa. You get the idea, right? So God's looking down. He sees Eric and Amber, and he goes, I've got a reserved blessing for you, a heritage. Bam, here's your four kids. That's how the Lord sees it. How do we see kids? How does culture see kids? How does God see kids? God sees them as a heritage. He says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. I'm just going to kind of throw in my own two cents here. Parenting is a young man's game. (laughs) This whole thing in culture where you're like, you wait till you're 45 to have kids, the Lord bless you. And if if that's your lot in life and that's when you had kids, I'm not trying to, but I am encouraging young couples, have kids. Like if you're young and you're married, What are you waiting for? If you're waiting till you can afford to have kids, you'll never be able to afford it. You have the energy now. You probably will not have the energy later, okay? So this is right here in the scripture. It says, it's the children of one's youth. And again, this this goes against culture, but personally, I believe it's a young man's game. Verse five, happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. There's so much in my heart about this that I just don't have time to be able to share. But I want to wrap it up in a a personal application. Outside of getting saved, getting saved was blessing number one in my life. Blessing number two in my life was being married to Amber. And then with that, right with that, is our four children. It is the best thing that we've done in life is to be able to have kids. And I'm thankful that God has blessed us with kids. Is it easy? No. Is it hard? Yes. Does it expose my selfishness? Every day. (laughs) But I can't imagine going through life without children. So if you're not allowed to have kids because you're not married, or God hasn't done that with what you're going through physically, I pray that God would comfort you in in a special way. But if you are able to have kids and for some reason your heart is hard towards kids because of the way that you were brought up or culture or society, I just pray that God would soften your heart and you would be able to see kids from God's perspective. Amen? So let's stand and let's pray together. Father, there's so much in this chapter that is challenging, that is counter-cultural, that's counter our flesh and our selfishness and We want to be the church that you've created us to be. So we pray you would grow us in prayer. You'd grow us in a heart for the lost and reaching out and sharing the gospel. And that we would be completely comfortable inside of the instructions of your word. That you would grow us as men, as servant leaders. We thank you so much for the women in our fellowship, for the inward beauty that they have, the way that they serve you and serve others. We pray that you would bless them and encourage them. As we move into this time of communion, may you bless it in Jesus' name. Amen.